You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Todd Leventhal. Todd Leventhal is with the International Information Program with the Department of State. And as such, uh, he is not a member of the intelligence community. But interestingly, he has dealt quite a bit in his career with countering, if you will, uh, Soviet active measures programs and other programs which deliberately spread distorted stories or disinformation, if you will, about America and about the United States and its involvement in many affairs. So I would like to just have him discuss a little bit uh, the nature of what he does, and then I would like him to address some of the specific specific stories he's dealt with, uh, such as 9-11, in which there have been so many distorted rumors put out about America and about the actual causes of 9-11. Just let me ask you, Todd, tell me something about your past involvement in countering Soviet active measures. Sure. I uh, started that job in 1987 with the U.S. Information Agency, which is now part of the State Department, uh, but it, at that time it was an independent agency. And we had, I was part of a small office, two or three people that worked getting information from our embassies overseas about what was in the press in their countries, and also we'd see what was in the, the Soviet press lies about America that we wanted to counter. So our job was to research any allegations, research anything we didn't know what the facts were, find out what the, what the real story was, get that out to our embassies, and also talk to the press if they had an interest in these stories as well to get the word out directly. We did that in cooperation with people at State Department and other agencies throughout the government. Now, you, you mentioned that, that uh, you would look at the Soviet press. A lot of the distorted or information or disinformation is actually put out covertly. In other words, it may not appear in their regular press. They they may surface the story in one country and then That's right. uh, you That's know the, peddle it in another. A classic example is AIDS disinformation. This was a campaign started in 1983. It started with a covert media placement in India. 
It's a paper name there named, uh, known as the Patriot, English language paper set up by KGB. And it ran a story in 83 saying AIDS was created by the Pentagon as part of their biological warfare experiments. Um, totally untrue, but a sensationalistic allegation that gets a lot of people's attention. Now, later on, in this case actually it was quite odd, but eventually this surfaced in the Soviet press in Literaturna Gazeta. This happened a two-year gap in, back in uh, 85. And then, of course, it's reported by TASS, the Soviet news service, and Novosti, their unofficial news service, which spread the, the rumor worldwide. So if you had, for example, and the, the black, the covert, and the white can work together in this case, and you might have a case, uh, an example where, say, uh, someone working in a Mexican newspaper gets uh, his KGB uh, handler says to him, I want you to plant this story in, the, uh, in your paper about AIDS being created by the Pentagon. He says, well, where am I going to say I got it? Well, here's a Novosti press release from just last week. You can quote Novosti. That's your source. Here's your money, and then that's how it works. The black and the white work together. Did you find, now I know your primary focus was Soviet that's disinformation. Right. In, that's right. Were you also dealing with disinformation created by other, other countries, other entities? Yes, absolutely. Um, one case was the shoot-down of Pan Am 103. Uh, this happened in 1988. This was over Lockerbie, Scotland. Over Lockerbie, yes. yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the Libyans were found to be involved with this. Well, there was a... A, a film on this issue which basically pointed the finger at everybody except the Libyans. Uh, so um, we worked on that case sort of sorting out what was real and what wasn't real. So the, the Libyans had an obvious interest in doing that. During the Persian Gulf War in uh, 1991, the Iraqis, are, after the uh, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990 and up through the end of the war, they were putting out a tremendous amount of disinformation about what was going on. They were saying when American troops were stationed in Saudi Arabia that we were uh, building churches there, uh, bringing in alcohol, uh, you know, raping women. You know, any, any crude lie that anybody could think up on the back of an envelope. They had a, a forgery that appeared once in Nigeria, written, supposedly written by a couple Saudi women or uh, uh, yes, Saudi women in Nigeria. Well, these women came forward later and said, I never, I never wrote this letter, and it's all made up. And it was the Iraqis had a, an intelligence apparatus that would plant these stories and, and replay them. And uh, sometimes, you know, to great effect, people w would believe this stuff because some people want to believe it. So the Iraqis, the Libyans, you know, the bad guys of the world, the Cubans had an active measures apparatus as well, the Nicaraguans. You know, you couldn't cover the globe. We focused on the Soviet Union. Uh, which, which covered a lot of the territory in the 80s when I was working this issue. But basically anything that was a problem for a U.S. embassy, if they wanted us to look into it, we did. You know, one of the uh, things that's gained some uh, legs overseas, and, and perhaps they've been deliberately created legs, is a, a, I think a video made here uh, in this country called Loose Change. Yes. Are you familiar with that? I'm very familiar with Loose Change. This is... Um, what, now, what is, what is the thrust there? It has to do yes, with 9-11. The thrust of loose change is that 9-11 was a, a U.S. government conspiracy. Basically, that uh, the U.S. government wanted to you know, launch a war in the Middle East, so we decided to attack ourselves or to, to let this happen or, or to, to, to make this, uh, give this, uh, this opportunity. It's, it's total nonsense, but it, it had gotten, uh, when I looked at it a while ago, over 10 million hits on the web. A lot of people believing this stuff, and it was made by a couple of college students. One guy, I think he tried to get into film school in the uh, State University of New York and was turned down a couple times. 
got interested in 9-11, researching it, and then became fascinated with these conspiracy theories and decided to make a film himself. And the film is really, uh, it's, 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 it's pathetic, really, in a lot of ways. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And it's gone through several iterations. People will point out the absurdities in it, and they'll correct, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll adjust for those in the next iteration, and, but they don't ever change their basic theme. So I did a, um, an analysis of this thing. For one of the, one of the uh, absurdities, for example, it says that the, uh, the Pentagon was attacked by a cruise missile with a depleted uranium warhead. This know. is in the film. This is in chain. the film. Mm-hmm. And there's a small hole that they show in the Pentagon. And, and that's what it looks like if you look at the pictures. Because at the Pentagon that day when it was hit by the plane, the plane made a, a large hole about 125 feet across. But that was on the first floor where it hit. It was right at ground level when it hit the, the building. Now, part of the pilot, where the pilot sits in the superstructure of the building, made a smaller hole in the second floor. When the firefighters got there and they're fighting the fire with the foam and everything, a few pictures were taken before that building collapsed. And you could see just the hole in the second floor because the, the hole in the first floor is obscured in most of the pictures. So they used this. This is supposedly their evidence for a small hole theory, which leads to the allegation about a cruise missile. It's nonsense. And if you look at the images carefully and freeze frame them, you can see the damage on the first floor, actually. But when you're watching it, you don't notice it. But people have done very extensive reports, independent uh, scientific uh, architectural firms, and they've laid out the damage very well, very clearly, uh, that was done by the plane. There's no question it was a, a huge hole, as big as the airplane itself. I mean, part of the thrust of some of these stories, including that one, is an effect to to spread, if you will, distrust among the American people about their own government. Yeah, it's a it's a curious phenomenon. These, for some reason, people suspect the government is, or some people, I should say, suspect the government is made up of, you know, extraordinarily evil people, rather than you know, it's just the same people walking the streets uh, in the general population. For goodness' sake, uh, we're not a, we're not a breed apart. And even if there are a few bad apples, for example, they would never be able to launch a huge conspiracy to get everybody to agree to it and nobody to say anything about it. It's just an absurd notion, but it's one that pops up time and time again. People seem to have this deep-seated suspicion of power and um, distrust, and it's it's a regrettable but recurrent phenomenon. Part of it, I mean, people attribute that uh, in part to the 60s and, and the uh, yeah. protest movements sure. and the Vietnam War and then Watergate. And, and that well, I can did understand spread that. some legitimate concern that, about uh, That's true. There's a, huge, a, much, a much greater distrust of government after that. There's, uh, there's no question whatsoever. However, when we look around the world, we see conspiracy theories being believed at the same, if not greater, levels in other countries. So it's not just an indigenous American phenomenon, but I agree then any time there's a distrust of power, and you could see in some of these countries that are, that are dictatorships in other parts of the world where the government does lie on a regular basis, they're going to be very distrustful. I know when you and I were talking earlier, you made reference to a story I'm not that familiar. You referred to body parts. Yes, this is our, our we call it the baby part story. This is something I worked on. Or for, baby parts. Sure, right. or body parts. I worked on it for 10 years, uh, from 1987, the very first week I walked in the door until... Uh, 96, it was a huge story in the world press, a rumor, basically basically an urban legend. Uh, many people have heard the urban legend of a, the kidney heist, what they call uh, someone wakes up in a hotel, 
Um, you know, they've gone to a strange city. They're in a hotel. They wake up the next morning and there's a, they're in a bucket of ice. And there's a note that says, you know, get yourself to a hospital. And they look and they've got a scar where their kidney has been taken out. Now, this, is, this rumor passes by word of mouth. It's sort of one of these urban legends that people believe and nobody ever has any proof for because it, it never exists. Well, this was like that. It was The story was that Americans are adopting children from Latin America and f- for use in organ transplants. You know, a horrifying story, but somehow a story that appeals to people's fears of the unknown, and especially when you're dealing with intercountry adoption. Here you've got people in... Uh, Latin American countries or in Eastern Europe and other countries indeed, Korea, that are giving up their children for adoption and they're naturally worried what's going to happen to them. And then some people have this mystical belief that American technology is all powerful and you can do these things. Actually, organ transplants are very complex operations, very difficult, and the, the, you know, the, the amount of people who have to be involved in it, the safeguards, all the tissue matching that has to be done, you can't just have a black market in these things that people can buy an organ on the black market. It's not, not like that at all. But people don't know this, and they're susceptible to these rumors, and, and they make headlines. Uh, they get published. The allegation makes a huge headline, and the retraction, which might come a day or two later, again, that's page 42. So this rumor just rocketed around the world in the late 80s uh, and actually won the most prestigious journalism prize in France in 95 and in Spain in 96. It's quite unbelievable. Uh, it was challenged on both cases, but but valid eventually validated in both cases as well. So, and the the rumor eventually sort of flamed itself out. It it it, it ran its course, uh, and, and journalists said, many journalists looked into it and said, "Oh yeah, you're right. I had done something debunking this, showing why it's not true." Is yeah, this is nonsense. But some of them ignored that, and they said, "Well, I see. I know a good story when I've seen it. I'm going after this." And you know, uh, maybe they believed it, maybe they didn't. I don't know. But um, once the story had been done, it, it sort of died away out of the world press. But it's still an urban legend in parts of the country where, in parts of the world where inter-country adoptions are, uh, are prevalent. For example, in Bulgaria, they had a, a form. Actually, in the 80s, a person from an adoption agency showed me a form that says, I will not use this child for organ transplants. You had to, you had to check that on the form. Isn't it? It's ridiculous. So they, what you're seeing is, is there is a ripple effect. That is even though you might put out a counter to the story. Oh, yes. And you may get a retraction from one paper. Oh, yes, no. That story sort of develops its own legs because Absolutely. of the nature of it. It's anti-American. That's right. It's, it's traumatic. It's horrifying. It's sensational. And so... In some cases, you're you're seeing echoes of those stories still appearing. Oh, absolutely! This story appeared in in late '96, the first rumor, and it's still around twenty something years later. So there's no question that these things have enormous staying power. Um, it's it's just part of human nature. It's how pe- people perceive things. Did was the did the Jonestown story get treated in the same fashion? You know Jones- what I'm referring to? Yes, the of mass, course. The, yeah, the massacre, mass suicide, mass yeah. suicide at, at Jonestown, and in. Um, uh, it's 1978. That was uh, that was more of a push story. The baby part story is sort of a pull story. It it arises spontaneously. In this case, the Soviets picked up on it, the Soviets and the Cubans, and ran with it in the 80s. But the story continued very strongly, even with no Soviet or Cuban involvement. The Jonestown uh, situation was the everybody was horrified when this this mass suicide took place. But it wasn't until about 10 years later that the Soviets, or eight years later, the Soviets published a book blaming all this on the CIA. And it's interesting, there was some Soviet connection there. Jim Jones 
um, was actually a communist. He is not well known, perhaps he seems like he's a, a preacher, and he was a preacher, but he believed his religion was socialism. People's temple, it's as in the people, as in Soviet ideology. And he wanted, actually wanted to emigrate to the Soviet Union. He corresponded with the Soviet embassy, and they, they must have you know, approached this somewhat warily, probably thought he was a little bit crazy, but they did correspond about this. And in fact, in his, uh, one of his final acts, when he decided to, uh, to kill everyone, because it wasn't a, a voluntary suicide, the people were said, you will drink this Kool-Aid or, or else, um, one of his last acts was to send people with all their funds and cash to give it to the Russians, to give it to the Soviets at the time. So he was a dedicated communist. So the Soviets had this correspondence with them. And, of course, their methodologists blame everything on the CIA. I mean, you know, that's simply it. I mean, there was a – I remember once in, in the late 80s there was a, a lake in uh, – Lake Nios in one of the West African countries. I can't remember now where there was this inversion, the poison, there's poison gas underneath the water, and then every once in a while it flips and the poison gas comes out and kills all the villagers. Well, who was that blamed on by the Soviets? Three guesses and the first two don't count. I mean, that's just your methodology. So in this case, they were able to write a 200-page book going on and on about Jonestown and blaming it all on the CIA, total nonsense. But um, an interesting aspect was that Jones himself was a communist, which wasn't well known. You know, one of the things that intrigues me about this this whole phenomenon of these <clears throat> these created stories, this deliberate disinformation, or or picking up a story that yeah, is distorted twisted. and just you know giving it legs. That's right. And that is in the work that you've done. Yes. Which has to do with with trying to counter the story, putting yes. the truth out there. That's right. That's right. Uh, often the truth has a hard time surviving. That's right. But in doing that. Mm. Your audience was a foreign audience, wasn't it? That's correct. You were doing it for the State Department, for the for the USIA. Absolutely. Which meant that your your countering uh, went out to that audience. That's right. What is available? My concern is I talk a lot to American students, college students, graduate students. Sure. And they're subjected to these, you know, the, some of this conspiratorial thinking and so forth. Yes. And here you've gone to a great deal of trouble to to amass the evidence to counter some of this stuff. Is your work available to an American audience? Uh, it is, uh, and w with an, an asterisk. Uh, there's a website that, w that we had up on our, on our website, america.gov, and um, unfortunately with the, uh, the switchover from an a old system to a new system, it's not available for a, an interim period. It will be in a, in a few months. I'm not sure what the title will be. Uh, but right now, the stories that I've written are available, but you have to go to America.gov and search them for conspiracy theory or September 11th or something like that, and, or baby parts or AIDS, and, and the stories will come up. And so, I mean, it sounds like there's just any number of stories that have come up through the years. Yes. That, that, I mean, in other words, yours has been a full-time occupation. Yeah, well, especially when there's the Soviet Union. They had a huge apparatus churning these things out on an you know, assembly line basis. And we had forgeries we had to deal with. Every once in a while, you'd see a forgery uh, appear, which is very interesting to deal with. Uh, so, yes, yeah, taken. Uh, I don't do it full-time now, but I did it full-time for many years. The main issues, I'd say, were AIDS created in the Pentagon was a huge campaign, a huge, you know, a mysterious disease. We now know it probably arose in the 1930s or thereabouts was transmitted from a chimpanzee. They've, they've isolated a chimpanzee virus that's very, very similar to the human AIDS virus uh, in West Africa. 
probably and they've done the, the molecular engineering and worked it backwards to you know when did it first transmit to America to uh, humans probably around 1930 well certainly no genetic engineering was possible at, at this point in time so that was a big one AIDS disinformation the baby part story Jonestown uh, depleted uranium there's a lot of hysteria about depleted uranium the Iraqis made use of this after the Gulf War we used depleted uranium munitions and they claimed they were causing cancer or birth defects in America and uh, Iraqi children. And then 9-11. And I've also looked into some historical stuff, for example, in the Kennedy assassination. Uh, Vincent Bugliosi has written this, uh, I think it's a 1,600-page book with, yeah. with uh, another several hundred pages of footnotes on a CD. <laughs> um, just goes everything you always wanted to know and more about what happened during the Kennedy assassination. And he takes on each of the conspiracy theorists and, and debunks them line by line. So that's a, uh, and I can't even claim to have read the entire book. I mean, it's, but he's done a decade's worth of work on that. So that's available as well to people. You know, uh, it's interesting. You and I are sitting here talking uh, within days of the inauguration of President Obama mm -hmm. and a, a new administration. Yes. And there's been a lot of talk recently about uh, bringing back or emphasizing again soft power. Yes. In other words, telling the American story, telling the truth, giving people a sense of, you know, who and what we are as a people. But I would like to think that a real, an important part of that is shooting down or debunking, to use your word, yes. some of the deliberate distortions that are out there. That is that is an important part of it. But the longer I work in this business, the more I'm convinced that there's a lot more than just the facts involved in, in belief in this area. You can assemble the facts, but whether people believe you or not is another question. And people will find, can find a million in ways, a million and one ways to disbelieve you if they want to disbelieve you. So in, in that regard, having a person like President Obama who is, who's got a biography and a manner that in, in inspires trust in large parts of the world that will go a tremendous way towards not debunking these rumors, you know, line by line, that's not his function, but in increasing the trust of the United States. So when people such as myself, State Department officials talk, we, we, we have some of that reflected patina that, of, of trust and people will take what we say a little more seriously. So I think a lot of it has to do with emotional responses. Uh, and if people don't want to believe you, they won't believe you, no matter how many facts you have on your side. That's what I've found. Yeah. It's, it's not so much seeing as believing, but believing is seeing. People <laughs> see, what they, see what they already believe. Well, and, I, and I should add that that's not, I mean, I'm oversimplifying, I guess, a little. That's, that's a large part of it, but there are a number <clears> of people who are fair-minded and confused by these things. You hear these things, these suspicions, sometimes these conspiracy theorists, they've got nothing else to do with their time. They have amassed seemingly, you know, infinite amount of anomalies and well, what happened to this and why didn't this happen and if you talk to them logically with facts and debunk some of these things a lot of people will come around but there are also a large portion that uh, you know they're more emotionally based you know one of the things that uh, we have found is that a number of people who who listen to our spy casts uh, and have given us feedback are, are students people either in college, graduate level, sure. and in some cases, they're confronted with stories about this, that, and the other thing. With, with some of the time we have here remaining, what might be your guidance to them? In other words, 
whether it was mm. whether it's your own son or daughter sure. or a relative who says, you know, Dad, I hear you know I hear about this and That's AIDS right. and CIA right. did that. And, right. You know, how do you know how do I how do I uh, reach the ground truth? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, You know, I've made the general point that our government is not made up of of malevolent conspirators, uh, but people have to, I suppose, take that on faith. But I think what people can do is simply research for themselves. Now, what I do, if I run into a new allegation, you know, I don't know everything uh, about what's going on in the U.S. government. I research it. And the most powerful tool is one that's available to everybody is simply Internet searches, Google. I mean, if you do... Uh, you know, a not, I don't know, a, a diligent job of researching these things. You may find a lot of garbage on the internet. You certainly will, but if you if you really research it, uh, you can find a lot of factual material. And it's a question of sifting it, I suppose. I I de- I've developed a feel over the years for what's true and what's not true. You just see so many instances, you you, you get a pretty good sense of what's real and what's not real. Um, but I think if people are fair-minded and simply do the research, they can find out uh, what's real for themselves. They don't have to accept it on, you know, somebody told me this. But a lot of people don't. Uh, they can, but, but they don't. Um, but it's, it's out there. It's available. The information is there. And you can call people. One of the things that I've done, of course, I'm a government official, so I call other government agencies. They'll, they'll take my phone calls. But you can call people if you have a question. I mean, there's... There's no, uh, the greatest research tool in the world uh, before the internet was the telephone, if if people use it. Do do you find generally, generally, that the American media Mm -hmm. is fairly good at sifting out some of these nonsense disinformation campaigns that get leveled at our country? Oh, absolutely. Um, One example was the baby parts campaign. The... um, there was a, a French, as I mentioned, that won this journalism prize in France, a French TV, uh, which was the equivalent, they billed themselves as the equivalent of 60 Minutes, and I think they had a relationship with 60 Minutes. Well, they tried to sell this story to 60 Minutes, they called me up, I talked to the woman there, I referred, I said, you know, if you don't believe me, call the people, the experts down at the United Network for Organ Sharing in Virginia that coordinates uh, organ transplants in the United States, and they quickly came to the conclusion that this story, there wasn't any... There wasn't anything to it, so they dropped it quite quickly. You, I think the you know the American media takes a bad rap in a lot of areas. People complain, uh, but I found them to be very professional and not to be taken in. Uh, this, and this was the story that was most likely to be taken in. Now that that said, there are certain stories where fear predominates, and depleted uranium is one of them. You know, I've come to the, you, I've done a lot of research on depleted uranium and how dangerous it is. It's, depleted uranium is the byproduct of you have uh, uranium in nature, which is a very low level of radioactivity. They take it and they make it into nuclear fuel by enhancing uh, the radioactivity. Uh, and what's left over, the spent fuel, uh, this, the byproduct, is depleted uranium. Depl- uranium has been depleted of its radioactivity. It's less radioactive than what you find in nature. Now, but you, you try to tell people it's not that dangerous and you know, nobody believes you because we simply have these associations with the word uranium. If you, if you hear the word uranium, what do you think? If you think of the atomic bomb, Hiroshima, radiation sickness, cancer, birth defects, all these things are immediate associations. And I'm more and more convinced that, you know, we're very logical creatures, but we're also creatures of uh, illogic and, and association. And these associations can trump logic, really. 
and shut information out. So you might see articles on alarmist articles on um, depleted uranium or subjects like this where people play to the fears. They might not say it's that dangerous, but they'll, uh, they'll give a lot of credence to it. Uh, Todd, let me end this with a, with a uh, softball. Sure. And that is that uh, <clears throat> I was very impressed by a uh, fellow I worked with, uh, uh, Director Bob Gates, who was yes. director of the agency, now, now Secretary of Defense, right. uh, recently came out and urged uh, the new administration to provide money, more money for, uh, for the soft power, if you will, but specifically yes. for the State Department for, to create more foreign service officers. And he uh, made uh, what many consider a very strong appointment in, in uh, uh, the new secretary now, uh, uh, Mrs. Clinton. Yes. And uh, so my question to you is, in talking to a younger person today, is today a good time to join the State Department? I think it is. I mean, um, we've got, you know, the world, the American, if you look at America in the entire post-World War II period, there was this long period of the Cold War, which and I was a part of, and, and it was uh, an exhilarating time. But now is a time when the world is, is imploding. It's, it's becoming closer and closer together in many ways. We're in each other's faces. We're, foreign affairs is part of our everyday life, more than it ever was before. And there's really no better career. If you're interested in foreign affairs and different cultures, there's no, more, no better career than the State Department. I'm a civil servant. I stay here and live here in Washington. I don't go overseas except for occasional trips. But foreign service officers lead fascinating careers. And the challenge is to understand a foreign culture, how to explain America to them, how to defend our policies, and how to, how to listen, you know, how to understand what they're saying about us and, and tell the people back in Washington. So I think it's an endlessly fascinating career for foreign service and civil service, and I've certainly found it very rewarding. Okay. Well, Todd Leventhal, you've been an endlessly fascinating interview, and thank, thank you, you so very much for coming well, over today. I really pleasure. enjoyed talking to you. Great. Thank you. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum dot org. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.